Amen. And speaking of Jesus being fairer than uh, lilies, I want to thank Karen and everyone who donated some uh, Easter lilies for our service this morning. We celebrate our risen Lord. If you would turn to John chapter 20 this morning. John chapter 20. History speaks. We uh, saw a movie the other night called The Boy in the Striped Pajamas. It's about the Holocaust. And uh, there are plenty of people who have reflected on that history and asked the question, well, what does that mean? What does the murder of six million Jews, among others, mean for the human condition? And I thought about it in light of what we celebrate, obviously, on Good Friday, which is the death of Christ, and that indeed Jesus came because of things like the Holocaust. He came to uh, restore a fallen world and to save sinners, and that's what we celebrate. Um, But the question is, uh, why do we call that Friday good? Well, it's only because of Sunday. Because on Friday, the disciples weren't thinking, wow, good Friday, let's celebrate. That wasn't what they were thinking. It wasn't until Sunday that Friday became good. Because it was in hindsight that they began to see what Friday was all about and to see that the hope that we have in the face of death because of what Christ has done for us. Speaking of history, it's kind of interesting, whether you're talking about ancient history or recent history, there there was a man who wrote an article, an opinion piece, that was published in the New York Times on Friday, this past Friday, Good Friday. And the title of the opinion piece was, In this time of war, I propose we give up God. And it was written by a man named Shalom Oslander, who is a a Jewish, an American Jewish novelist. And he was reflecting on the fact that Easter weekend is also, for the Jews, the celebration of Passover, right? Because Jesus, from the Christian perspective, is the the fulfillment of all that Passover means. Well, he, as a Jewish person, raised as a Jewish person, was reflecting on uh, his own experience and what he was taught as a Jewish boy. And his perspective on things now is what really needs to be passed over is God himself. And he mentions the fact, in this time of war and violence, of oppression and suffering, I propose we pass over something else, God. Now, why does he say that? Because he reflects on the things that he heard uh, taught in the Old Testament about the plagues and about God delivering the people of Israel from Egypt. And his conclusion is that the real problem there wasn't the Egyptians persecuting the Israelites, but the real problem was a God who would inflict plagues on the Egyptians. And so he says that the plagues on the Egyptians is just like the Russians invading Ukraine. He's making that parallel. He says, just as troubling, even more so today in light of the brutal slaughter taking place in Ukraine were the plagues themselves. He says, if he were mortal, the God of Jews, Christians, and Muslims would be dragged to the Hague, which is a place in the Netherlands, which is where they have the uh, International Court of Justice and the International Criminal Court. 
He's basically saying God ought to be prosecuted for what he's done in history. He goes on to talk about the fact that um, there are all kinds of things that God has done through history that are wrong, and he was actually taught um, as a little Jewish boy that as they celebrated the Seder feast, at the end they would go outside and they would look outside and they would say, pour out thy wrath upon the nations that did not know you. And he is arguing in this article that the reason why things are happening in Ukraine, as they are with people being killed and slaughtered and brutalized in so many ways, he is arguing that we are made in the image of God. And therefore, that's why we're doing what we're doing. And so he kind of concludes by saying the rabbis used to tell students that God killed the firstborn cattle in the Exodus because the Egyptians believed they were gods. But he adds, killing gods is an idea I can get behind. So he's arguing uh, that we ought to kill God. And the reality is that's exactly what we celebrate at Easter time is that God in the person of his son Jesus was killed. But he was not killed for the reasons this man writes. He was not killed because God was evil. He was killed because we are evil. Man is evil. And we desperately need a savior. And so the point of this is that we can look at history and read it different ways. We can misunderstand history. This man looks at things that he sees in the Ukraine happening today, looks at things that happened in Egypt thousands of years ago, and he interprets it as God is evil. And the only reason why we're doing what we're doing is because we're reflecting God. Well, In John 20, there was misunderstanding as well. There's a lot of misunderstanding in John 20. But it was as they began to see what was really happening that they were filled with joy. And that's what fills our own hearts and lives with joy when we see God as he really is. And we see what he's done for us in Christ. And so what I'd like for us to think about as we uh, look at John 20 is the questions... Why should we believe that Christianity is true? Why should we believe without seeing the risen Christ? And what does the resurrection of Christ mean for those who believe? So if you would, join with me in reading John chapter 20. And we'll uh, highlight some things in it this morning as we celebrate our risen Lord. Verse 1 says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark, and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter, and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, He saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came, following him, and entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. 
So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of God. The verse that stood out to me as I thought about this passage is verse 29 and 30, uh, excuse me, 29, where it says, Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. It's interesting that the Lord Jesus, on the one hand, um, tells us that 
it's important to not only see and believe, obviously the disciples saw and believed, Thomas saw and believed, which was important for them in light of what God was calling them to do, but he emphasizes the fact that it's important that we not see and believe as well. And why would that be? Anybody in here seen the risen Christ? Then why are you here? You've not seen and believed. Because most people who believe in Jesus will believe by not seeing him in his risen, glorified state. It doesn't mean they don't see him in any way, shape, or form. It just means they won't see him like Thomas did or like the disciples did right after the resurrection. We see him by faith. We don't see him physically, but we do see him through the eyes of faith. And so it's important that we realize that lest we find ourselves like Thomas, unless I'm able to uh, put my fingers in the nail prints, which are probably there, or my hand in his side, I will not believe. Jesus says, not everyone's going to have this opportunity that I'm giving you, Thomas. Therefore, blessed, truly happy, forever and fully happy are those who do not see me in the way you are seeing me and yet believe just like you're believing. And so I want to help us think through this just a little bit um, because it's very important to realize that the resurrection of Christ is the hinge for everything else. If this isn't true, then we should all go home. There was a man, there is a man named Lee Strobel. Many of you have read probably some of the things he's written. He talks about his own experience, how he was raised in a Christian home, but his parents never spoke about God in their home, even though they went to church. And his dad told him at one time, I don't have enough love for you to fill my little finger. He said it's kind of hard to believe in a, a loving father as God when your dad is telling you those kinds of things. And so he grew up and he got married and he said, you know, being an atheist was perfect for my kind of lifestyle. And then all of a sudden, my wife gets saved. And he said, I had to figure out a way to debunk this Christianity in order to bring some sanity back to my wife and my marriage and my life. So he begins trying to uh, find a way to disprove Christianity. And he realized that the key thing to disprove is the resurrection and the death of Christ at in light of the fact that they go together. And so he said there were four questions that he sought out to answer, and he was uh, an investigative journalist for the Chicago Tribune, so he was used to doing these kinds of investigations and interviewing people. He said one question was, was Jesus really dead? The second question, did believers invent this story? Thirdly, was the tomb actually empty? And fourth, did people actually see Jesus alive? And he talked to all kinds of experts in various fields. And he came to this conclusion that Jesus was truly raised from the dead. He said, if the resurrection of Jesus is true, then his teachings are not just wise words from an old dead sage. So they are the very words of God. We're compelled to follow these teachings and help our children understand that Jesus deserves our worship and our allegiance. His resurrection means that he is still alive and we can encounter him today. And because of his atoning death on the cross, all those who follow him have received forgiveness for their sins, and heaven is open for all of us. 
The resurrection truly changes everything. The question is, what was it about the evidence that he saw that God used to not only open his eyes to the resurrection of Jesus, but to raise him from the spiritually dead? So I want to touch on that just briefly this morning with the little time that we have in light of several things that come out when you think about how God has used the truth of the resurrection of Christ to raise sinners from spiritual death. And the first thing is circumstantial evidence. Even in our courts today, we use circumstantial evidence, which is evidence that is not... um, witness-based testimony. It's not where you bring in a witness to testify, but you're looking at the circumstances around what happened. First of all, in in verse 1, we see in verse 1 where it says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. One of the things that's interesting about the four Gospels is that all four uh, Gospel writers under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, have given us four stories that include some similar things, some same things in the story, and some things that are are uh, different. And so it's like four different people uh, watching an, an accident at an intersection and including some of the same elements in the story because they all saw the same accident. They include different things, too, because they're highlighting different aspects of what actually happened. And so... Mary here appears to be coming to the tomb by herself. The other accounts highlight that she was actually with other women. She's coming to the tomb and the, uh, there's nobody there. And yet the other accounts highlight the fact that there were probably as many as 16 Roman guards at the tomb. But they're no longer at the tomb at this point. And so it says she came and what she noticed in the very first thing and all the writers uh, highlight this, that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And we may just read over that very quickly and think, well, that's interesting. Well, it was very interesting because those stones tended to be one and a half to two tons, and they were uh, put into place through, um, you know, um, levers, So it wasn't just a little stone that you just kind of pick up and put it in place that could be easily picked up and put in place. And one of the uh, stories that was uh, spread around was that the the disciples kind of snuck in and, you know, they snuck Jesus out while the the Roman guards were sleeping and all this sort of thing. Well, the reality, reality excuse me, is that it would have taken 20 men to get that stone out of the groove that it was in. So the question is, how did the groove get there? Well, the other accounts indicate that there was an earthquake, and that earthquake was associated with an angel who sat on top of the stone once it was moved. And so it was a supernatural experience that that happened. And therefore, it was something that spoke to the fact that something unusual has happened here. Uh, This wasn't just somebody walking by, they moved the stone, they dragged Jesus' body out, and they didn't wake up the Roman soldiers as if they would have been sleeping anyway. But what we see as it goes on from there to talk about the fact that not only was the circumstance of the stone being moved, which was very shocking uh, to Mary, 
Uh, obviously, Mary still thinks that Jesus is going to be dead. She's not coming to the tomb to find the risen Christ. She's coming to the uh, tomb to find a dead Jesus because they were coming back to finish the work of burying him that they didn't have time to finish. So she's not coming expecting Jesus to be alive. She's coming expecting Jesus to be dead. And she's surprised that the stone is moved and the women in other accounts are asking, who's going to move the stone for us? We can't move the stone by ourselves. Who's going to do it? Well, the other circumstance that we also see in this passage is it says in verses 6 and 7 that that Mary reported to Peter and uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved is John, the writer of this gospel. And they run to the tomb And it says in verses 6 and 7 that they saw the linen linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Now, what's interesting about that? It's interesting because if, um, if Jesus had been the victim of grave robbers, and there were a lot of grave robbers in that day and time, they would rob graves to get the valuables in the grave, in order to enrich themselves, to sell them, or whatever it might be. And linen wrappings for burials were actually very valuable. And the other things that were often uh, with them. And yet when someone was buried and wrapped up in these uh, linen wrappings, they would put in all kinds of aromatic spices and things that would actually congeal like cement. And so it wasn't like you could just easily pull that stuff off. They were actually, uh, you, you could argue, a, a sort of embalming from the outside. They're, they're doing something to, to encase the dead body and to, in some sense, preserve it for as long as possible, maybe. I'm not sure what all went into that, but there could be as much as 100 pounds of that kind of thing around the body. And so you've got... Uh, the situation where no grave robber is going to go in and do all that right there in the grave. They're going to take the body someplace and they're going to actually keep the linen wrappings. They're going to keep the spices and the other things because that's the reason why they're actually robbing the grave. It's for those very things. And so you've got a circumstance in which uh, it doesn't fit with the narrative that the religious leaders were selling or trying to sell because when the guards uh, go to religious leaders and tell them what has happened, they bribe them to say that the disciples stole the body. They robbed the grave. The very disciples who abandoned Jesus when he was being crucified, who denied him when he was being crucified, who are now hiding behind locked doors, those disciples came and overcame Roman guards who were sleeping. You know what the uh, price that a Roman guard would pay if he was caught sleeping on the job? They would take off his clothes, prepare a fire, and burn him to, to death in his own clothes. There was no way a Roman guard on watch by night was going to sleep. He knew it would be his death if he did. He'd rather die than go to sleep because he knew that would be exactly what he would experience. And so what I'm saying is, when you really think about the circumstances around the resurrection of Jesus, you realize it doesn't fit with the narrative the religious leaders wanted to sell everyone. 
And it also says, obviously, that um, in this account, that Jesus' body wasn't there. And the religious leaders could not produce a body. That's why they had to come up with a different narrative for what happened. And so what we see here, just looking at the circumstances around the resurrection of Jesus, uh, we just see all kinds of things that point toward the resurrection of Jesus, that it was something supernatural, something unusual. In fact, if the Roman guards were guarding the tomb, there would have been a Roman seal on that tomb. And so grave robbers would say, that's the last tomb we're going to rob. Because if someone robbed a tomb that had a Roman seal on it, the Roman FBI, CIA, would hunt you down and kill you. You did not do that. They'd say, let's find another tomb to rob. And so there's all kinds of things just about the circumstances of what happened um, with regard to uh, the resurrection of Jesus that do not fit the narrative that it, was, it couldn't have been the resurrection because it, there's just something else that explains it so much more easily when the rea- reality is that the easy um, solution is Jesus must have rose from the dead, just like they said. Well, obviously, not only do we find in court situations circumstantial evidence, but we also find eyewitness testimony. And so what we see in verse 12 is we see Mary, who is still weeping, and she looks into the tomb, and it says that she saw two angels in white. And these angels ask her, uh, woman, which is, it seemed harsh to us, but it was probably uh, communicated something like, my lady, something more tender. Why are you weeping? And she says, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. So she still can only imagine that it must have been a grave robber of someone, some kind that had taken away the body of Jesus. And then it says in verse 16 that she turns and she sees this man and she thinks it's the gardener. So still she's misunderstanding what's going on. She doesn't even recognize Jesus. And then Jesus speaks her name. And all of a sudden the lights come on. And she realizes that Jesus has been raised from the dead, and she t- goes back and she tells the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Obviously, Jesus appears to the disciples in the upper room, as many people think that's where they were, and it says the disciples in verse 20 rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So if you look at all the different accounts, on Easter Sunday, Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene, He appeared to other women that are named in the other accounts. He appeared to the two on the road to Emmaus. You remember the two, they're leaving Jerusalem, they're going to Emmaus, and Jesus comes alongside them, and he's recognized in the breaking of bread. It says that he appeared to Peter individually. Wasn't that a kindness? After Peter denied him three times, and Jesus says, I'm back, and I love you. He appears to the ten and some others, which is what we have here. And it says in John 20 that there were 11 right left, right? Because Judas was gone. So there are 11 of them left, but Thomas isn't there. 
So there's only 10 of the disciples and maybe some other uh, believers there as well. And then it says after Easter Sunday, eight days later, which would have been the following Sunday, Jesus appears to Thomas. And then at some point he appears in John 21 to those who are fishing. He appears to his own brother James. He appears to Saul on the road to Damascus. And probably before that, at some point, he appears to 500 people all at once. We actually hear about some of this in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, then to the twelve. They would call the twelve the twelve even after they were only eleven, because that was their name. They're the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. That's Paul speaking. So the interesting thing is that Paul says, and this is within 30 years of the death and resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus actually appeared at some point to 500 brethren. And some people would say, well, they must have been hallucinating. People don't hallucinate together. Hey, let's get together and hallucinate. I mean, unless you're doing drugs or something, but you're still not going to be seeing the same thing. Hallucinations are very, very individual. And so for 500 people to see the same thing says it could not have been an hallucination. And Paul says in that passage, and if you don't believe me, go ask them. Because they're still alive, most of them, or many of them. Just go ask them. Now, it's very hard for something that's just a big lie to continue when you've got plenty of people around that you can ask whether or not it's really true or not. Did this really happen or not? Myths and legends take generations to develop when people are already dead and gone and you can't ask them and talk to them. But all of this transpired very shortly after the death of Jesus. And as a result, we see lives that are changed. And not just changed by people who wanted him to rise from the dead. A lot of people will say, well, certainly Jesus can be said to have appeared to those who wanted him to be alive. You know, like the the 12 disciples, at that point, the 11 disciples, didn't they want him to be alive? Maybe it's just wishful thinking. Maybe they're just wanting that, and so therefore, they kind of wished it into being. Well, there are others that Jesus appeared to that did not want him to be alive or did not think that he would be alive, like who? Like Paul, who was Saul, or like even James, the brother of Jesus. And so when we think about the whole issue of changed lives, we look at verse 28, where it says, after Thomas sees Jesus, he says, my Lord and my God. He says, you are the one who should be ruler of my, over my life, and you are more than just a man. You are my Lord and my God. He was changed in seeing the risen Christ. Peter is another great illustration of that. We see that before the crucifixion, he denies Christ three times. 
He's afraid to even admit to a little slave girl that he followed Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, he stands up in a big crowd and says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus that you crucified. And those were fighting words. If you want to stir somebody up, you point at them and say, You crucified the Lord who was promised by God. He knew that, and yet he was not afraid because he was changed by seeing the risen Christ. Now, as I mentioned, a lot of people think that um, Jesus just appeared to friendly folks. But as I said, he appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus, and he said to Saul, he blinds him with the light, and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. He was going around throwing Christians in jail and having them killed. He was not somehow so psychologically inclined to believe that Jesus was Lord and God. That was the last thing that he thought would ever be true. And he hated the idea that Jesus was a false Messiah. And so Jesus appears to him and he is transformed, immediately begins preaching the gospel. And immediately people begin planning to kill him. And he continues preaching the gospel. I mentioned James, who was one of four, we might call half-brothers of Jesus, who became a leader in the Jerusalem church. And he was part of this family who at one time, it says in Mark 3, when his own people, speaking of his family, Jesus' family, heard of this, they went out to take custody of Jesus. For they were saying, he has lost his senses. Meaning, our brother, our big brother is crazy. He's lost his mind. He's going around acting like he's some savior. He's, some, he's preaching and teaching and healing and There's something wrong with him. And so we see that something changed. In Acts chapter 1, you see where it says, These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So what happened? They went from thinking he was a crazy man to believing that he was the Messiah, that he was God, the, the very one they grew up with, so to speak. How does that happen? Well, it says Jesus appeared to James, and he probably told his brothers, our big brother appeared to me, and he's not just our big brother. He's Lord and God. He's the Messiah, just like he said he was. Well, another interesting thing about this, Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday, and we celebrate Every Sunday, in a sense, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, because we celebrate on Sunday. But people have highlighted the fact that um, it was no small thing that Jewish, devout Jewish people would stop honoring Saturday as their day of worship and start emphasizing Sunday as their day of worship. Because in the Old Testament, If you were to violate the Sabbath command by picking up sticks, maybe, on the Sabbath, you could 
be stoned. It, it could be a death sentence. And so the Jewish people understood that maintaining the Sabbath was very, very important to truly honoring the true God. Jesus emphasizes in the Old Testament that one way you make clear that you are my people is that you have all the men circumcised and you honor the Sabbath day. And so for them to begin worshiping on Sunday would have meant that there was a complete change, a dramatic change in their whole view of the God who called them to worship him. And they realized that that Yahweh of the Old Testament was the Jesus that they had walked with. And so all of these things are just ways in which we can see that it was no small change in the lives of people uh, that caused them to worship the risen Christ. Well, it says in verse 31 that believing you may have life in his name. I just want to highlight some things for us who do believe. What does it mean for us who believe in the resurrection of Jesus? Well, the first thing it means is that we have confirmation that we are forgiven. And in our singing this morning, we highlighted that. Uh, The end of the passage that Daniel read highlighted that as well. In Romans 1 verse 4, it says that, that Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. So how do we know, as Mark said, that Jesus lived the life we could never live? How do we know that he died the death we deserve to die? How do we know that he is an able and willing Savior for sinners? How do we know he is the Lord of all? How do we know that we can be forgiven if we trust in him? It's because of the resurrection. That's the only reason we believe those things to be true. It's because of the resurrection. It says in Romans 4, He who was delivered over because of our transgression and was raised because of our justification. Meaning that it was going to be a testimony to the fact that all those who trust in him will be declared forgiven and righteous. In Romans 8 it says, Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. The reason why I can never be condemned and you can never be condemned is because the one who determines who is condemned and who isn't sits at the right hand of God. And his name is Jesus. And we've entrusted ourselves to Jesus. And Jesus knows how to take care of people who entrust him themselves to him he knows how to take care of everyone who comes to him for salvation and so we can be uh, we can know that a past finished work has been completed when he said it is finished on the cross the resurrection was God's amen it is finished the price has been paid that we might be forgiven secondly we also see that not only do we not have to worry about our past sins, but that we can actually live a different kind of life, that we've been united to a living Savior, and therefore we can live new lives. Whatever might plague us, we can know that Christ, who is a living Savior, can enable us to overcome that. Whatever fears, anxieties, weaknesses, sins, whatever it may be, 
That's why it says in Romans 6, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. We've been united to Christ so that we could be different people, so that we could love God like we've never loved him before, so that we can love our families like we've never loved them before, so that we can love other people in the church like we've never loved them before, so that we can love people who don't know Jesus like we've never loved them before. We have that hope. It's not in us to do it by ourselves, but we have that hope. In Romans 7 it says, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. So the fact that we're united to Jesus gives us hope that my past doesn't have to be my present or my future. I can be increasingly set free from sin and sorrow and all the things that weigh me down. Then finally, because of Jesus' resurrection, we have the hope of resurrection too. One of the interesting things that we find in Matthew 27 is that it says this. when It's in connection with the death of Christ, but it points forward to the resurrection of Christ. It says, The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. So when Jesus was raised, other saints were raised. And they went into town and said, hey, why did that happen? It was meant to convey that that's the purpose of the resurrection of Jesus, is that saints might be raised. They might have life after death, and not just existence after death, but what is really life, full and lasting happiness and joy with God, in the presence of God. And so that's what it says in Romans 6, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Well, what if uh, Christ had not been raised from the dead? It says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, your faith also is vain. You would not be justified. You would not be forgiven. You would not stand righteous before God and neither would I. In verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 15, he says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. You would have no new life. You'd be the same old person you was, you were before you started believing in Jesus. There would be nothing new about you if Jesus had not been raised from the dead. You are still in your sins, still in your guilt, still under the power of sin. Then he says in verse 32, If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Which means if Jesus wasn't raised, I have no hope of resurrection, so I just might as well get the most out of I can that I can out of the pleasures of this life, because there's no pleasure ahead. There's nothing to look forward to if Jesus has not been raised. And so the resurrection of Jesus gives us hope with regard to our past and our present and our future. It covers everything, and it's crucial to everything. Well, a lot of people would argue that, well, that's fine. You know, how do we know that um, these people weren't just um, living and, and dying for a lie? Do people die for lies? Yes, they do. 
There are people who fly planes into towers based on lies. So people do die for lies. But it can be argued that no one dies for what they know to be a lie. They don't die for something they they know they just made this up. They don't get tortured for things they know they just made up. They don't die because of a lie, of a a myth, of a a legend that they decided to come up with. And so that's why you've got what it says in in John 20, 21. Jesus says, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And so Jesus sends out the disciples, the apostles to preach and teach. And in verse 22, he says, Receive the Holy Spirit because they would need the Holy Spirit to enable them to do that. And the reality is um, Satan... And evil men have opposed the church of God from the very beginning. And Paul, it says in Acts 14, was actually stoned to death. It appears they left him for dead. Maybe he was dead, I don't know, but he got up. And he didn't say, you know what? I've been preaching this lie for a while. I think I'll stop. It's getting to be kind of hard, kind of rough, you know? These bumps and cuts all over my body are a little uncomfortable. I think I'll just go find a place to retire. He doesn't do that. What he does is he keeps on preaching the gospel. And he shows up and he preaches to some believers after he's been stoned with all these cuts and bumps all over his body. And he says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Only someone who knows that they've seen the risen Christ, would do just that. That's why I would say, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, basically, what are the implications if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead? And one of the things he he said that I just read, he said, if from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul does not say, even if Christ didn't rise again, it's still a good life, and it's still worth it. You know, it's nice. I can take my kids to church, and we can have a nice middle-class lifestyle, and things are fine. In America, that was that way 50 years ago. It didn't really matter, did it, to whether Christ rose or not? You could still have a nice life. You're still respected in the community here in America it's pretty easy. You could even run for office and be a Christian and might get you some extra votes. And so what way it was in America 50 years ago. So the way it was right after Jesus rose from the dead, uh, to embrace Jesus was to embrace death, to embrace suffering, to embrace persecution. And Paul says, if Jesus isn't raised, I'm done. It's not worth it. It's not worth it to fight with beasts. It's not worth it to be persecuted. It's not worth it to be stoned if he's not raised from the dead. But he says, but he has been raised from the dead. And so I'll endure it all because it's all worth it. I will not lose anything. I will gain everything because Jesus has been raised from the dead. Well, the last thing I just want to highlight That was that fourth point, that uh, endurance despite fierce opposition is a great testimony to the reality that Christ has been raised. The last thing, and this is very important for us because it relates to what I said in the beginning about 
not seeing and yet believing, because that's all of us here. We have not seen the risen Christ, and yet we believe, and that's the way God is working. And it says in uh, verse 31, But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And so John is highlighting the fact, God through John is highlighting the fact that the normal people, excuse me, the normal way people are going to come to Christ is not through seeing the risen Christ, but through the written word of God. That's how people are going to come to Christ. These things have been written that you might believe. The testimony of all these people, the signs that Jesus did, his appearances to his apostles, all these things have been written that you may believe. Now we might say, but wait a minute, wait a minute, wouldn't it be better if Jesus appeared to everybody? Wouldn't that be something that would make the difference? Well, there's a, a, a story that Jesus told about the rich man and Lazarus. You may remember that story where the rich man dies, Lazarus dies, Lazarus goes to heaven, the bosom of Abraham. Uh, the rich man dies and go to hell, goes to hell. And in hell, he asks Abraham to send Lazarus to uh, quench his thirst and, and ease the pain of hell that he's in. And then he asks Abraham to send Lazarus back to earth to warn his brothers. And Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But the rich man says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. As a way of saying, the truth of God's word is all we need to believe. God uses his word to bring life. Calvin said, speaking about what's going on here in this passage, here Christ commends faith on this ground, that it acquiesces or rests in the bare word and does not depend on carnal views or human reason. That phrase, the bare word, what does that mean? That means that God's word is enough. If God says it, then I should believe it. That God's word is enough. God doesn't have to send somebody back from the dead. I don't need a little boy who goes to heaven and writes a book about going to heaven to tell me the truth. I don't need an appearance of anyone or anything, even Jesus. I just need the word of God, the bare word. God has given me his word. So why is believing without seeing important? Because it's God's way. Now, there are some exceptions. The apostles were the exception. But overall, it's the way God works. He works by his spirit through his word. He tells us to trust him. Like he told Abraham, I'm going to send you to a land that you've not seen. Trust me and go. We trust God's word even when we don't see everything we might like to see. We might ask the question is, what is written really all we need to believe without seeing? And the reality is God's word just simply needs to be embraced. Because the real problem isn't a lack 
of evidence. It's not a lack of testimony. It's not a lack of circumstantial evidence. It's not a lack of um, the church enduring fierce opposition. It's not a lack of changed lives. It's not a lack of any of those things. It's our own hard heart where we don't want to believe. So how does anybody ever believe? And that's exactly what Dan was talking about earlier, that his dad rejoices in, even now, the doctrines of grace. But the reality is nobody believes in the resurrected Jesus until God resurrects them, until he raises them from the dead spiritually. And that's what Ephesians 2 is all about. God in his mercy raises sinners from the dead so that they believe in the resurrected Jesus so that if anyone believes in the resurrected Jesus savingly, all the glory goes to God. And that's why we worship God and we don't pat ourselves on the back as Christians. We celebrate what Jesus has done for us. We celebrate what God has done in us so that we trust in what Jesus has done for us. The last thing, and I need to close with this, is that obviously the truth of the resurrection requires a response C.S. Lewis said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, is of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. If the resurrection is true and Christianity is true, then it's huge. If it's not true, then we need to go home. Like Paul said, let's just eat, drink, and be merry. This is just a waste of time, and we're foolish. We're of all men most to be pitied if this isn't true. If Jesus is not resurrected from the dead. Well, let me close with this. What does the truth of the resurrection of Jesus mean if you're not a believer? Well, the resurrection says to unbelievers, Jesus is an able and willing Savior for you. Because it says in Romans 10, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Whoever calls upon the risen Lord will be saved from their sins. That's what the resurrection says to unbelievers. That's what we are to say to unbelievers. But what does the resurrection say to believers? There's a story in Luke 14 where Jesus says, when you have a feast, invite people who can't pay you back. Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Do what you do now, not for what you get now, but for what you will get at the resurrection of the righteous. Do it for that. So that really, whatever suffering we go through now, whatever service we render now, The resurrection of Jesus says to us, it will be worth it. Whatever suffering you go through now, whatever service you render now, it will be worth it. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Not because we've earned it, but because Jesus will reward us graciously because of what he has earned. And so we could rejoice that the resurrection of Jesus declares that there is a Savior for sinners. And if we have loved ones that aren't saved, then we can be thankful. 
that there is a Savior for sinners, and we pray, we should pray for them, and we should point them to that Savior when we have that opportunity. And for those of us who do believe, we can know that there's not a single thing we suffer or a single thing we do in service to Christ that will not be rewarded at the resurrection of the righteous. It is not going to be wasted. Not a single tear and not a single cup of water. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to reflect on what you've done for us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the opportunity to rejoice in what the resurrection says. History speaks. And yet the greatest of all things that have happened in the history of the world, your life and death and resurrection, speak loudly to us. And I pray that you would speak loudly through the truth that we've read and seen this morning, and that for those here who have not yet repented of their sins and turned and entrusted themselves to you, I pray that they would this very day, by your gracious work in their hearts, may they see you, Lord Jesus, as an able and willing Savior, ready to forgive. For those of us who have entrusted ourselves to you, Lord Jesus, please encourage us to know that there's no suffering we go through, there's no service we render, that you will not cause us to benefit from and to work to our good and to reward us for in the life to come, that it will all be worth it for the glory of your name, for our own good and for the good of others. We thank you for loving us in this way. We honor you and bless you and pray that you prepare us to receive the Lord's Supper and to to rejoice in all that you've done for us. We bless you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.